Good morning, everybody. How are you guys doing? Good. My name is Nathaniel. Um, it is my pleasure um, to be able to speak to you this morning. I'm very thankful. Um, a few things about me. I love God. I love this church. Um, and I love my wife, Katie. Um, my hope this morning is that I would be able to, um, in sharing what I have to share, to be faithful to what the Spirit of God has been teaching me, reteaching me, and reteaching me, and reteaching me, <laughs> and that it would hopefully be challenging and encouraging. Um, this morning I'm going to be preaching from Philippians chapter 3. Um, so if you have your Bibles, I would recommend turning there. Um, and just talking about God's grace for the weary and the anxious. Um, so that's going to be the topic for today. Another thing um, that a few people here know about me or might, know, might not know about me is that I'm an engineer by training. Um, this is what I study in, in university. This is what I do for work. Um, and the reason why I became an engineer um, was pretty simple. In high school, I did pretty well in math and science, and all the cool kids wanted to be engineers. So I'm like, all right, that seems reasonable. Let's do it. Um, and of course, that sort of reasoning is problematic because once you get into university, all those assumptions and expectations of what school is going to be like just get tossed out the window, as I'm sure some of us can relate to. Um, like, for example, in high school, you, I learned that typically you get graded on what you do well or what you know. So like on a math exam, if I get the wrong answer, well, as long as you can show your process and show here's what I do know, you'll get a decent grade at the end. But I remember the hardest course I ever took in engineering school was, it was called machine design with Professor William Altenoff. Just the name sounds, the name itself just sounds super intense. And he was, he was like the type of guy that like, I'm the youngest professor in this faculty. I do research into like child safety seats for cars and stuff. So like he was super big on the whole human lives are in the hands of engineers type thing. So very intense. Um, and his grading philosophy was very different from what I was used to. He stated very clearly his expectation on the exams was that your answer basically must be flawless or else the whole thing is graded to zero. No part marks, no partial recognition, nothing. And the way you go about responding to questions on the exams was actually very specific. You have to state your assumptions, summarize all the relevant formula, state all the steps you're going to use to actually solve a problem on the exam. Then you have to go about solving the problem and then you have to state your final answer. And by the way, your final answer has to be correct. No math errors, nothing has to be out of order, correct phraseology, units, significant figures, everything. A few exceptions. And I remember like before our midterm exam, like our first exam, there were two kinds of people like among the students. There was the people like me who were just freaking out, studying all night, panicking. And there's the other people that are like, you know, I'm just going to fail anyways. Why bother trying? Don't show up to the exam. Um, I mean, you can guess what the average grade was. When I did the first exam, I remember I got a 40%, which was pretty terrible. The good news, it's kind of sad, but the good news was the class average was 20%. <laughs> so my message this morning is pretty simple. It's OK to fail exams as long as you pass the average by the average. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> it's not that. Do well in school, guys. <laughs> um, no, my, my message is pretty simple. Um, the, 
The kingdom of God is not like that, thankfully. But oftentimes, it can feel like that. So I, I knew where the professor was coming from. He was very much against casual engineers who didn't care about actual results, um, you know, Ds for degrees, that kind of thinking. Um, but he leaned so heavily in the opposite direction of just, you got to be flawless or else. Um, so when we think about, about our life with Jesus, we can stumble into a similar mindset where like, okay, am I honoring God? No, I'm not. Okay, what am I doing with with my life, why can't I get this right? Am I even a Christian? Let me expand on that a little bit further. For those of us who have in faith placed our hope and trust in Jesus, congrats, uh, we are now declared innocent and forgiven of our sins, past, present, and future, based upon, this, based upon Jesus' perfect life, death, and resurrection. We have become adopted sons and daughters and are now citizens of God's heavenly reality. We're part of his family. We have been made spiritually alive. We have a new identity and purpose. We are a new creation, as it says in 2 Corinthians 5.17. God is teaching us now through Christ's example and by the power of the Spirit uh, to live in obedience to the Father's will, to become like Jesus, conforming to his image. In other words, we're not just off the hook for our sins, but now we're actually being trained to be like Jesus. We get to participate in the ever-abundant life of the triune God. And there's a key theological term here that is kind of be, going to be the theme for today. It's called sanctification. It comes from two Latin words. Uh, the first is sanctus, which means holy or pure. The second term is facere, which means to make. Thus, sanctification means to make holy. And this is the English rendering of the Greek term hagiosmos, which essentially refers to the purification of the person or making holy of the person, becoming us, uh, making us like Jesus. Um, and if you want an example of that in scripture, 1 Thessalonians, Thessalonians 4 is a good place where that, that term is used. You'll note that sanctification is not an instant event like salvation. It's an ongoing lifelong process. And the point is that we would attain true joy, like Jesus talks about in John 10. But I wonder how much or how many of us experience joy in our day-to-day -day lives. Do we experience peace? Do we feel that God is close? I mean, we're declared innocent, great, but in our lived experience, do we feel like we're pure in our thoughts or in our actions or in our speech? I like to think so, but the reality is not often. There's a discrepancy there. There's a gap between who we are, where we are, and where we want to be, who we ought to be like. Yes. <laughs> so we have a problem. Um, it's a time problem. I can live for 80,000 years, not going to happen, but I could, and just learn Jesus' ways as best I could, and at the end of it, I will still not be close to being like Jesus. And the reality is, I'm only going to live maybe till I'm 80 if I'm lucky. So, I have to come to terms with the fact that in this life, I, in every moment, am just going to be here and Jesus is going to be like here. So what do I do with that? This is something that I struggle hard with. I can remember time and time again when I was 15 years old, 20 years old, and now 28. 
um, wondering to myself, well, if Jesus was able to live a perfect life, denying a million temptations to, you know, sexual sin, greed, I want to take vengeance against the Romans, all that stuff that would be so easy to give into. And yet he doesn't, and he dies on a cross for me and suffers on my behalf. Why can't I just get up an hour earlier to read my Bible before work or school? And literally, I did this this past week. I got up at 4.50 in the morning to go on a business trip to Michigan. Could I do that just to read my Bible or pray or any of those good things? <laughs> I mean, I can, but I don't, and that's a problem. I've struggled with my lack of faith, my inconsistent devotional life, I want to be kind. I want to love my wife well, but so often I mess up and I fall flat on my face. I don't extend support to people that I see truly need it. I don't share my faith with my coworkers. We try and we do our best, but we're never quite able to achieve perfect godliness. And we're aware of this, often painfully so. And as life can feel like an endless treadmill, as life moves on, regrets and fears accumulate to the point where we may not quite feel pleasant to ourselves, to others, not to mention God. We don't reflect Christ. We don't honor him, though we try. And I would like to think that I do my best and that I'm trying my hardest, but are my motives really that pure? Am I really doing my absolute best? Probably not, which means that not only are my actions off the mark, but my heart is also. Maybe you too have also struggled with some of these questions like I have, even recently. How can I call myself a follower of Jesus? I'm so terrible. Am I even saved? Like, how can God work through such a defective instrument like me? Is there hope for me to be better? What is so wrong with me that I can't just do the things I know God is calling me to do? Where is God and why am I not experiencing the transformation that I want, need, that I'm expecting? Why does God feel so far away from me? I don't feel that I am living in God's will for my life. So time works against us, sure, yet time also highlights that we have a desperate need for Jesus in each and every moment, in each and every hour. What do we truly have here and now? Is it a, is it a good conscience, a clean conscience? Is it accomplishments? Time reminds us that our only ally in this life is Jesus. If only we had the eyes to see him there. Uh, so this morning I want to talk about this gap. I want to talk about this discrepancy between who we are and who we want to be. And where is Jesus in the middle of all that? And the Apostle Paul, thankfully, has some words of advice for people like you and me who struggle with this um, in Philippians chapter 3. Um, it's 21 verses. Um, I'm going to go through it kind of section at a time and unpack it. And I think it'll hopefully uncover some things that are helpful for us. I also want, it's, this isn't in my notes, but I also want to mention that this isn't just about, the word that I have isn't just for me because I struggle. It also isn't just for a few struggling Christians in the room, but this is for Anchor Point as well, because thinking of us as a family, 
are we where we ultimately want to be? I love this church. I love what I've gained from being here. But there's work for us to do in every area. So like we can, even if I don't necessarily struggle with these particular things, just as a family, we're all together in this. So before I get into it, um, I want to talk about Paul because he's the writer and just it's good to remember who he was because that'll help us understand things better. So the Apostle Paul wrote the letter to the Philippians. He was at the early part of his career, a Jewish authority who persecuted the early church. Then in a dramatic encounter uh, with the ascended Jesus on the road to Damascus, which you can read about in the book of Acts. Um, he converts and becomes a follower of Jesus, which is great. He becomes a missionary, plants churches. He got imprisoned a few times. Um, he wrote many letters to many of these churches and individuals, um, which are included in our New Testament. In one of his imprisonments, probably in Rome, but some have argued in Ephesus, Paul wrote a letter to the church in Philippi. Now, Paul wrote this letter like one's like one would write a letter to a friend it's just emanating with joy with encouragement his desire is to encourage this church to have peace and unity with one another to thank them for their prayer and generous financial support throughout his missions um, and just asking that they would continue to know and imitate christ at a deeper level and to value him above all things in the third chapter which is going to be the subject for today um, paul has advice for those struggling and that's kind of where we're at this morning. I want to quickly pray just before we start. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this family. Help us to hear the word that you would have for us today. Help me to be clear in what I'm saying. Um, help us to be receptive to you and to learn to love each other better this morning. Amen. All right, so the first section is going to be uh, verses 1 to 7. So that's our starting point for this morning. Verse 1, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Wow. <laughs> but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So let's stop there. Paul is opening this chapter as a warning. Remember who he's talking to. He has a good relationship with the Philippian church. They're partners in the gospel. So this is a kind warning. Um, but here he's warning that there are people out there, sometimes called the Judaizers, who are essentially trying to persuade Christians to believing a false gospel, which is basically, in order to be a member of God's family to be saved, you have to have faith in Jesus, but you also still have to be circumcised. 
Um, and in Paul's mind, um, this false gospel uh, relies on our fleshly works, our efforts. And here Paul is unequivocally saying, no. I can kind of hear Paul saying, bro, check out my stats. If anyone could be considered righteous according to the works, it's me, bro. Bro. <laughs> um, circumcised, check. Hebrew of Hebrews, check. Tribe of Benjamin, check, check. Paul was a top performer in adhering to Jewish law and tradition, he says, which is kind of a funny humble brag moment. However, all of this earthly work that Paul has done throughout his life is reliant on the flesh and draws from the desire to exalt the self to earn his favor with God. Um, it's basically about me, or in this case, it's about Paul. So even with Paul's impressive resume here, it still counts for nothing, which is crazy when you think about it. He still needs Christ's forgiveness. So we'll move on to the next section of scripture, uh, which is verse 11, or sorry, 8 to 11. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So this section here lays the necessary foundation for what is to come and must remain front and center in our minds if we are to have a proper, balanced understanding of our experience of faith and how that relates to our status before God. <laughs> our own work in ourselves is insufficient to meet, to meet God's perfect standard. Everything we do is tainted by sin and is in some way, shape, or form oriented towards the self. So, what matters now is no longer the circumcision of the flesh, but the circumcision of our heart. I refer back to verse 3. We depend wholly on Jesus Christ and his righteousness and forgiveness for us. By faith, trusting in him, we are united to Christ, which is a mystery, and we are now hidden in him. Bam. <laughs> um, so what this means is, God has clothed us in his own perfect righteousness, and we are hereby declared innocent before God. We're no longer considered by God to be these sinful strays, but now we have a clean record. We have a clean slate. When God sees us, he sees Jesus. Do we ever stop to think about that and what that means? <clears throat> Though in life we will continue to struggle against sinful passions, sure. However, we remain under the protection of this ultimate reality, what God has done for us and said about us. In verses 10 to 11, Paul continues to emphasize that our faith in Jesus is not only the foundation of our salvation, but it is also by faith in the power of the Spirit and in our knowledge of Jesus that we can actually make progress to being like Jesus. Um, he emphasizes things like being found in him, gaining him. It is the very power of the resurrection that transforms us from the inside out, beginning to end, our spiritual life is dependent on the power of the triune God. 
The next verse that I like to focus on is uh, verse 12. Not that I have already attained this, um, or I'm already perfect, but I, Paul, um, press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. And there's a lot in this verse to unpack. Paul plainly admits, though, that he is not perfect, that he has not obtained the resurrection of the dead. In other words, he hasn't achieved perfect likeness or oneness with Jesus, even though he is saved. So for us, though we are declared innocent and righteous, we're still imperfect in our lives and our experience. We still sin and we make mistakes. Mistakes. Um, but know what Paul is saying here. We as Christians are striving, straining, pressing towards Jesus. This desire to express godliness can be hard work. Like it is, it requires discipline. It requires us to understand what God has actually commanded us to do. And this desire to express godliness can be all the more frightening when the standard of perfection becomes the yardstick of every waking decision. I mean, didn't Jesus say at one point, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect? Like, what am I supposed to do with that? <laughs> Can we talk for a minute about perfectionism? Okay, Nate, I know perfectionism is bad, yada, yada. Well, hold on. Hold. Let's think about this. If we want to be like Jesus, and Jesus is perfect, aren't we aiming for perfectionism? Isn't perfectionism in some, in some sense what Christians are aiming for? I want to say something. I find it interesting and helpful. Take it with a grain of salt, though. I'm not an expert. Recent psychological research uh, suggests that there are at least two key dimensions of clinical perfectionism. The first is having exceedingly high standards. The second dimension is what they call evaluative, evaluative concerns, which is basically that harsh criticism that we have of ourselves. Moreover, perfectionism can be oriented towards the self. I can have high standards or be critical towards myself, or it can be outward oriented. I can look at others and have high standards of other people. Interesting. Studies show that there is surprisingly only a loose correlation between having high personal standards and having symptoms of anxiety, for example. On the other hand, there is, or there seems to be, Again, I'm not an expert. There seems to be a strong positive correlation between having that harsh criticism, that evaluative concern, um, and having symptoms of anxiety, whether that's state or trading anxiety or social anxiety, whatever it is. Um, two psychological researchers, DiBartolo and Burgess, write, perfectionists are more likely to experience automatic and negative thoughts about their performance during stressful events anticipate failure in the future, and ruminate about past failures. These attentional and memory biases lead perfectionists to overestimate the probability of future failure, and interestingly enough, inflate the cost of failure. So things must be just so. We must be all together. We must have it all together. And what often mediates these perfectionistic attitudes and the experience of anxiety is the distorted thinking that we have about what we value, about our experiences. Moreover, to quote those same uh, researchers, perfectionists tend to lack social support and resources due to their desire to prevent a flawless image. We must face the world on our own because I have to meet that standard. I have to be the one that does it. 
And so we put on a facade that we are all together. We run on this treadmill of work in order to feel valid, justified, and beautiful to the world and to ourselves. And all of this represents that not only is our treasure laid here on earth, but that we are the performer. We are the ones driving our own validation, justification, and beauty, not God. This sort of perfectionism, which is not the one that I'm advocating for, obviously, is exhausting. It causes us to isolate, and so it disconnects us from our true source, our sustainer, our God. It puts us at the center. The corrective to all of this, put simply, and it's a subtle difference, but we are pursuing Jesus Christ, the man himself, not our own perfection in the pursuit thereof. Do we notice that slight difference? The difference is where our eyes are actually gazing. In the plain admission of his own imperfection, Paul is saying that he strives towards the goal of being like Jesus because Jesus actually made him his own. Notice the logic in verse 12. Paul doesn't say God, me has made, God has made me his own because I press on. But Paul is saying, I press on because Christ has made me his own. That difference makes a world of a difference. As a necessary result of God possessing us, we now can learn to possess God, to take hold of Christ, to live into his reality. See also what Paul wrote earlier in the very same letter in verse 6, or sorry, chapter 1, verse 6. In chapter 2, verse 13, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion, for it is God who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. So here's kind of the takeaway from all this. I know I'm saying a lot, but when we fail, when we mess up and stumble, hear the voice of Jesus saying, hey man, or hey girl, <laughs> it's okay. Take a deep breath, get on your feet. You're with me. I've got you. We are Christ's workmanship. We are his kids. He's the one forming us. We are not self-made, nor do we have to worry about being self-made. The idea of belonging to Jesus, we no longer merely belong to ourselves, but we are now the work of Jesus. And this motivates us to continue striving in obedience, in freedom, knowing that Jesus and his spirit runs alongside us, empowering us. The next block, verse 13 to 14, we continue there. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. So Paul gives us another key to a balanced perspective. We must appropriately conceptualize time. Interesting. We exist in the present, the past is the past. We do not look to our past successes for our value or our own justification. As though we could earn our place with God in his kingdom. We've already discussed this. Nor do we look at our past mistakes as though they can strip us from the very hand of God. Which Romans 8 talks about a lot, also by Paul. As well, while the future is beyond our reach, we can keep it in focus knowing that what lies ahead is infinitely better than what lies behind. It is our hope that one day we will actually be made into the very image of Jesus. Like, can we think about that? Like, what does that actually look like? What could that mean for us? We can look to the future and dream that we will be living alongside of him 
in a new spiritual reality with all of our brothers and sisters together in a family. This is what Paul is describing as this upward call or the resurrection of the dead, which we can look forward to. We have a bright and beautiful future ahead. Continuing on, verse 15 to 16, let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. So let's stop there. So Paul considers this, what we've been talking about, to be a mature outlook on our sanctification, on our growth. Um, to summarize, we are striving towards being like Jesus because we are called to follow him, and he has made us his own. Our sins are nailed to the cross, as it says in Colossians 2. We are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, and now there is no condemnation. Awesome. We dwell not on our own past, but we are looking to the luminous horizon where Jesus Christ is glorified and our actual joining with him. We are beginning to end the work of Jesus by the power of the Spirit, and this is the grace of God in our sanctification. But... Some of us here may still feel uneasy or just flatly disagree with what I'm saying or take issue. And when I read what Paul is writing here, I think that's actually okay. Paul here is saying like, sanctification is a process where we're working along the si alongside the spirit so we can trust that God in time will reveal our blind spots to us and point us to the truth. We can actually trust in the process and not force the issue of us changing. There is grace for our slow growth into maturity. However, we are still responsible for the things that we have learned and that the Spirit is convicting us of. Continuing on, verse 17 to 19. Brothers, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who are walking according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. When I read this, I hear a little bit of urgency from Paul. And I just want to offer a gentle, loving encouragement and challenge we need to disciple and we need to be discipled. This is a core element of what it means for us to be a family. The less mature in the faith among us need the mature and vice versa. Vice versa. For those of us who are young in faith and have lots to learn or feel we have to learn still, uh, we have to learn to imitate those who are genuine, trustworthy, and wise. We have to look to us, to those who are older than us. Submit yourself to another's mentorship, learn at their feet. And for those of us who have been followers for a while and have gained experience and, you know, we're maybe a further along the path, we have to learn to share our lives with those who are young, less mature, those who are hungry. Make yourselves available. Invite the young in faith into your life. All of us, we need to share, challenge, encourage, imitate. We must confess our sins to each other and forgive each other often. Paul here is saying the risk, if we don't practice this, is quite serious. Paul says, with tears, many have walked away from Jesus and served earthly ends. So I guess the point is that we need each other. 
hold on to each other, love each other, love each other well, and keep each other accountable. Continuing on, um, verse 20 to 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. What? By the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Christians are marked by the hope promised to us by Jesus in his return. This promise reminds us that we remain in the imperfect present and will not experience perfection until that day. But this ought to build excitement and wonder in us. The same power that rose Jesus from the dead is at work in us even now. And so we have much to look forward to. The same spirit that raised Jesus, sure and certain, is living inside of you, running alongside you, seeing to it that you progress along this road to renewal and transformation, and as it is promised, will bring it to completion. So just a few points of application. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who some of you might be familiar with, uh, wrote in a book called The Cost of Discipleship, famously, that when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Okay, whoa. Um, it's daunting, but it's true. He means that following Jesus isn't just a matter of being off the hook, forgiveness of sins. It's actually about repentance and leaving our old ways, our old self behind. Um, and in the same book, Bonhoeffer warns us against two extreme ideas. The first idea is cheap grace, which is like, okay, I'm forgiven all my sins. I can just do whatever I want uh, because God's just going to forgive me and cool. Also, do I even have to go to church still? Um, and then there's the other extreme idea, which Paul warns us, or Bonhoeffer warns us against, which is this religious legalism or perfectionism, which is, I got to work and work and try to earn God's love and favor. I'm, I'm not going to make it, though. So Bonhoeffer says that there is, that grace is costly. Um, and here's what he says about that. Um, and there's a quote. Can we switch to that? Thank you. Just for those to be. So here's what he says about costly grace, which is grace properly understood. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy, which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye that causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life, and it is grace because it gives the man his only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin, of course, and grace becomes, and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. You were bought at a price. And what has got, cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. So grace is all forgiving and it is all demanding. 
Grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls, a, calls us to follow Jesus. Grace is both at once, and in order to see this and to reconcile this in our own lives, we must realize in our heart that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Galatians 2, also by Paul. <laughs> we struggle with the discrepancy, as we discussed, between our experience of faith and imperfection and where we want to be, which is like Jesus. Um, and Paul offers us what he calls a mature spiritual out outlook. So we can switch to that summary. Audrey? Yeah, thanks. We must know that we cannot earn God's love and favor, but that it is freely given. Though faith, through faith in Jesus, based on his righteousness, his perfect resume, not our works, our achieve, achievements, or our clean conscience. It doesn't even depend on whether or not we feel we are saved or whether or not we feel we are true followers of Jesus. Um, C.S. Lewis put it well when he said that the presence of God is not the same as the sense of the presence of God. It is all about Christ and his work on our behalf. We are like Peter. We're called to walk on water. So we set out. We're a little nervous at first, uh, but we set out. We follow the call. We answer God's call, but inevitably we will stumble, get distracted, and we'll start to sink at some point. But fear not, because Jesus is there to catch us, grace abounds. We must have a proper conceptualization of time. Don't cling to the past, whether it's about your success or your failure. Look at what lies ahead. Focus on the goal. Um, a helpful illustration. You could be driving on the road at 200 kilometers an hour. You're trying to get to Toronto. You're trying to get there as fast as you can. But if you accidentally get on the northbound ramp on the 400, you're headed to North Bay, man. You're not, you're not going to get there. However, if you're driving at 40 kilometers an hour, sure, it's slow. But if you go south on 400, you're eventually going to get there. So the point of that is just to say that, like, keep your eyes on Jesus. That's what's more important than the speed at which you're progressing. Hold on to what you've learned. Strive for obedience. Learn to imitate others. Don't run on your own because you're not. Christ is living in you. The spirit is there running along, alongside of you, empowering you. And you have a family of believers that are right there with you. We're all struggling in the same, same boat. And it's come up a couple of times today, but like learn to ask for help. Pray like we have God at our disposal. So things today might look dark, but we can trust God. We can trust in the process that he is training us in time. And one day he'll bring us to completion. So just a final few thoughts. Um, what now? Like when I leave today, what's, what's going to be different? Am I going to continue despairing about my failure? Will I still feel just disturbed by my lack of faith? Or what is it? Maybe. And at some point, I probably will. I want to close with, a, with an illustration. Hopefully some of you will get it. If not, that's okay. So Stranger Things season four came out last year, I think, which I watched and I enjoyed thoroughly. I don't recommend it to just anybody because it is kind of dark. However, there's something interesting. The, there's a, well, in short, the show, the show is about kids in the 80s basically trying to prevent these 
otherworldly forces from a world called the Upside Down from invading and destroying their town. And there's something that stood out to me. There's a villain that emerges, particularly in season four, called Vecna. He is this supernatural being. Um, and in many ways, he's kind of like the White Witch or the Joker or Sauron. He is bent on destroying people and making them suffer. And the way that he does this is sinister and familiar. Through his power, he enters the minds of his victims and he taunts them and replaces them, their failures, their guilt, the trauma they've experienced in their past. And it's interesting, his message seems to be simple. You've messed up so horribly, you've lived such an awful life, awful life, you're better off not living, who loves you, that sort of thing. Does that sound familiar? Um, and the people that Vecna preys upon, they are attacked by him and they kind of give in to these thoughts. And as they give in, Vecna takes control and leads them to their demise, which is horrifying. And the heroes of the show, fortunately, they find a solution. They find a way of protecting themselves against this enemy, which interestingly enough is music. Music has ways of speaking to the mind that words cannot as ways of reminding us of what's normal. So like that's interesting when we think about things like Alzheimer's and dementia. Music has that ability. So here's kind of the point of the illustration. The enemy works in a similar way. He will bring out these condemnations and accusations based on our failure, like, Nate, you messed up. Why can't you be a better husband? We have a song that protects us from the overwhelming condemnation of the enemy and the lies that we tell ourselves. Against the shame and the guilt is the song of our union with Christ. Blast it at full volume, just all the time, whenever you can, whenever you think about it. Rankin Wilburn, in a book called Union with Christ, puts it this way. You are in Christ. When you feel defeated and ensnared, like you're never going to get over this particular sin, habit, or hang up, when your enemy accuses you and your heart tells you to retreat in shame, you can rehearse and remember, I am in Christ. I am one for whom he died. So, in conclusion, the story isn't finished. Our story isn't finished. I am not my own. All I can do is just set out in total trust in him, and this is all I have. So may our souls find rest in the abiding trinity. May our anxious thoughts give heed to the life-giving perspective that Paul has given us. And may we know the grace of God for our present day moment-by-moment -moment sanctification in the weeks to come.